welcome to the Keenan Yoga podcast, bringing you the stories of many people who in various ways are attempting to walk the path of yoga. Our intention is to inspire your own practice and commitment to yoga beyond the mat and in all areas of life. We consider this an offering, a service to the community and labour of love. If you feel inclined, any donations are appreciated, just visit our page and click the donate button at www.keenonyoga.co.uk forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest on the Keenan Yoga podcast is Joey Miles. Joey started in 1998 after a background growing up pursuing circus, martial arts and physical theatre. He calls it a misspent youth. Whilst a goldsmith studying for his BA in drama, he started the Yoga Society there. And around that time, he also started Ashtanga, Ashtanga Yoga London with Hamish Hendry. From graduating, he began assisting Hamish at the Yoga School of London, where he did so for three years, along with practicing daily with Hamish. 2004, he was authorized to teach the primary series by Batabi Joyce and taught a daily master program at the well-known Tri-Yoga in London between 2005 and 2008. 2009, he's relocated to Hebden Bridge in the north of England, set up Ashtanga Yoga Leeds. 2014, he's completed the Advanced A Series in Mysore, which is a unique and well-respected accomplishment. And other than that, Joey is a lover of music and dance, a well-loved personality, a unique and engaging and enthusiastic teacher, as well as friend. Welcome to the Keenan Yoga Podcast, Joey. Lovely to have you. Um, you just want to just tell us how you first got into yoga? Just a little intro. Um, I first got into yoga when I was about 17 years old, so I was quite young. Right. I, I was already doing physical theatre and I was, um, I've been quite involved in circus, uh, circus arts, so I did a lot of juggling. Mm-hmm. And I'd been exposed to circus artists and physical theatre people who did sort of warm-up routines and physical or physicality-type routines. So I'd been exposed to some of that and was aware it had value. And I was also keen to make some changes in my life because um, when I was quite young, I, uh, I was quite hedonistic. And uh, that's a <laughs> bit of a euphemism. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I did. I had a bit of a drug problem when I was young. And I was keen to um, I was keen to stop that. Um, I had a few run-ins and a few near misses. I also had a couple of close friends who um, one went to prison for a short time and another in section. So you know, I had Mm. issues. Um, So I had enough of a sort of and just enough stuff. Mm. I think right, I should do something, and I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I've alluded to the fact that I was exposed to it through circuits, but in the beginning, um, this was, I'm trying to think, it was the late 90s, and I'm sure there were mm. classes about, but I was just a teenage boy in Oxford, and I wasn't mm. exposed to them. So I started from a book. So I spent right. a year practicing on my own from a book. Frankly, you know, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And mm. I was shocked, you know, because you see a diagram in a book and you try to do, I don't know, something as simple as Shalabhasana, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm stuck on the floor here. Um, so anyway, so that's how I started. I did a, did a year, and very quickly I started to feel tremendously well, like really tremendously well. I didn't feel so lonely. I didn't feel so um, sort of lost. Um, I loved the health benefits or the physical benefits of being able to mm. like, match my leg a few inches further. I liked that because I could see it. I think the funny thing is, we're probably, because I did the same thing for a book. I think I had light on yoga. I don't know what book you're on. And I can only imagine, well, you might not have been, but I would have been doing these shapes terribly. Like, you know, probably absolutely terribly. But yet, and I think it's worth remembering as teachers, like when we're assuming that we ought to kind of instruct correctly per se, or, you know, actually you get so much benefit and, and health benefit and mental benefit, even if you're doing the shapes rubbishly. Yeah. Well, for me, it went hand in hand. I used to wake up in the morning and smoke first thing in the morning. And then having smoked, I would meet my friends at the park and we would all smoke before going to school. Cigarette or, <laughs> or No, other stuff. And then, right, okay. and then instead I was waking up at 6am and doing some yoga for an hour. And then I was like, right, 
that's good. And it was like my way of stopping, stopping getting high all the time from first thing in the right. morning. So I'd started the day in kind of a different frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And from that age, I think it was the last six months of A-levels or whatever it was, I, um, you know, I, it became my sort of discipline structure. And then, um, frankly, from then, I, I mean, it sounds a bit dramatic to say I turned my life around, but things really did change for me very quickly from that point. Mm. And a year later, when I was at Goldsmiths at university, I was exposed to some quite good teaching. And that was when um, I was exposed to learning Surin Mascara and a sort of um, abbreviated method of Ashtanga that worked quite well for me. But again, right. for the next few years, I wasn't doing Mysore style. I wasn't, mm. I wasn't being told that I couldn't do more poses because I hadn't learned that one. I didn't even know about that. Yeah. In the beginning, yeah. I just sort of got told to do, you know, Janish Shasana followed by Marishasana A and then C, a kind of short forms type practice. Yeah. And it wasn't... And that was, you were doing drama at university, right? Yeah, I was doing drama yeah. at theatre. Mm-hmm. I loved that. I mean, I really loved the whole kind of performance, performative element. And for me, in the beginning, yoga was very much linked to my drive was I'd like to be a good performer. Mm. You know, I could well, see um, yeah. the physicality of good actors and I wanted to do that. That's not uncommon in the yoga world generally, I'd say, these days. No, it's very, it's very <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Performance in yoga? Um, <laughs> and you start you <laughs> strange. <laughs> you, you started, um, that reminds me of a, a, spect, uh, a spectated lead second class in my store. Um, the, the, you know, the watching from the door <laughs> in the lead intermediate, a, a yoga performance. Um, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. I, I couldn't follow. I was like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, remember, what, remember when you're doing a lead intermediate in my store? Yeah, no, watching, yeah, watching the, and you yeah. kind of feel that you're almost doing a performance. <laughs> oh, <laughs> rightly or wrongly. Um, to be honest, I you, used to like that. I mean, I still, do. I, I don't do it enough, but I still participate and have done for a long time with five rhythms, the dance practice. Do you? Do you? Well, as an. Sorry, you were you were part of the Tripsicori, weren't you? In the oh no, I was never. Part no, of no, you you didn't do that. You didn't do that. It was a yoga. It was a yoga kind of um. What was Tripsicori? A yoga theatre thing in London, wasn't it? I, think. I don't right. know whether it's still still yeah. around. What I was trying to allude to in the Five Rhythms practice is there's a simple practice where they say take a partner, and um, and then you watch your partner dancing, and then you're kind of dancing at the side. You're watching, but you're giving them all your attention. And then right. So there's basically a big room of dancers. There's a circle of people, and they're looking at one person on the inside. And then you know, you partners and you switch. I um, the truth is, I mean, it's probably obvious. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this podcast with you. The truth is, I I like being watched. I've always liked. I've actually quite liked the attention. I mean, I'm just being honest. Uh, I yeah, that's fair attention. enough. Do you? And right. I'm very aware that people don't like that. They feel exposed. But I've always rather liked it. I um. I quite enjoy hmm. that element of it. Right. So, so although people used to sort of moan a bit about, <laughs> well, you were slightly alluding to it, I, it's a shame when yoga becomes a performance and it's a different <laughs> thing. But I, I've never particularly been too bothered about showing people stuff. Mm. And then you, how, did it, how did that kind of performance become something else? Or, you know, how did it evolve into and your finding Ashtanga yoga and, you know, Getting into, uh, I think you assisted Hamish for a number of years in uh, Stenger, London, right? And then no, you taught it. Still, I was still an undergraduate at Goldsmith, right? And mm-hmm. I went to a couple of workshops at first with John Scott, but he was not in London anymore. And having done a few workshops with John, um, he said to me, "You must go to Hamish." And I had heard that Hamish was full and that you couldn't go. And to be honest, I'd never particularly thought about going into central London. I mean, Goldsmiths was in East London, so I didn't mm. feel like going into central. Anyway, but when John told me pretty certainly, you know, in that way that some teachers can, you should do that. <laughs> He's like, you must go to... So I phoned Amish, and he just said, well, come every day. Come at whatever time suits you, seven o'clock, I think he said. And then pretty quickly, I mean, I just loved the atmosphere at Hamish's. I loved the intensity. Before Hamish's, I went to Jenny and Sabelle, but that was just at the weekend. All right. And I like being with men doing yoga. I know that might sound odd, but when I first did yoga at Goldsmiths, I was in a class with about 30, 40 women, and there'd be men. Right. If I was lucky, there'd be one other guy. I thought you would have liked that as part of it. 
But there was a part, part of your performance. Say again? I thought you'd invite that as part of your performance. <laughs> <laughs> the, the adulation of the women as well. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, <laughs> no, you didn't. I, 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 enjoyed, I did also martial arts back then, and I enjoyed the camaraderie of men in changing rooms doing Aikido, and I enjoyed all that aspect of the social side of, of going to right. you know, mm-hmm. like Aikido and so on. And I, um, I missed that a little bit in classes that were just women. Um, anyway, when I went to Jenny and Sabelle's, just simple things like I've never taken since doing Ashtanga yoga classes, I hadn't taken my T-shirt off. It felt inappropriate somehow. But Jenny and Sabelle's, it was like, oh look, the men just take their T-shirts off, which, as you know, when you're dripping with sweat, seems the most natural thing to do. It's probably what you do at home. So I liked that feeling of um, sort of yeah, just I don't know. It felt it felt right. Also, I'd come from rave culture, you know. I'd come from techno parties and drum and bass parties and. I like that kind of sweaty underground basement room. Kind of, it felt a bit dark and underground. And yeah, I, I I felt very at home as soon as I went into that environment. I I liked it. And then, and then I was still an undergraduate. So then, having yeah. finished my degree, uh, in fact, it was before I finished. Hamish suggested that I assist him, and I thought that was sort of chance of a lifetime. Which, if I'm honest, it was. I mean, I owe Hamish a lot. He taught me. He taught me an awful lot. And it was a great place to learn by observing bodies and being shown what to do. And I had a sort of beautifully, um, if I'm honest, I was a good beginner back then. I didn't overthink it. I just, I just did what I was told. I had total faith in it. And I just, you know, got on with it. I was, I was only 21 when I was doing that's, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, so that worked really well for me for, for a number of years. Very, very well. Yeah. And I didn't particularly, I, I, I can't say I gave it a great deal of thought. I just sort of fell into it. It was, frankly, it was an accident. You know, I didn't, right. I hadn't thought about it. I was finishing my degree, you know, got asked to do this thing, you know, thought, well, that's great. Started doing it. And then quite quickly, um, people like Jonathan at Tryoga were asking me to teach quite regularly. And that was great. But I realized I was, I suppose I realized I was out of my depth. And I realized then there was about a, an entire lifetime of study involved if I was going to take the responsibility seriously, which I would say I, I still do. So, you know, I realized, you know, in the beginning, it was London in whatever it was, 2002 or something. And um, because I, because I, because it looked on the outside like I could do some of these yoga shapes, I was told to show other people how to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, and, um, and I did, and I was—I think I was adequate at it. But I also look back, and you know, think I was perhaps a bit naive or you know, ill-informed. So I, I slowly started to, or not slowly, I quite rigorously started to study with other people. So you were, you were teaching the Mysore at Yoga before you'd been to Mysore itself, or no, no, I've been to Mysore three times. I've got okay, to teach right. Mm. I got authorized to teach. Did I then go off to? run the Mysore class at, at Trayoga. In the beginning, okay. I was a bit more traditional in my approach. I was like, right, yeah. do it properly, get my stripes. Um, yeah, so, you know, I did, I did that, and, and that worked well for me. But when I was at Trayoga, because, because Trayoga has always had that deal, which is teachers can join in with other teachers' class very cheap, I, um, I did start to do a lot of... Um, I did just practice with lots of different people, and it was there that I met Alaric, who's been probably my sort of biggest influence after the structure of the Ashtanga practice. Right. And that, that's the Yenga. That's the, yeah. the Yenga. He's, yeah. right. he's a senior Iyengar teacher. And he's been, he's been my teacher now, probably my central teacher for the last 15 years. Right. Are you still practice with him? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. I still practice with him quite regularly. Perhaps we'll, perhaps we'll go and, and, and on in a minute to make a little kind of comparison of the, you know, the, the two methods. Um, but first of all, can you just tell us a bit about your experience with the Mysore, how you found it, um, what your experiences of the, of the tradition are, and maybe, you know, what you feel about it now. I, I, I trust, you know, now you're also exploring other modalities as well. You know, how, how you kind of think those early experiences into your current teaching, just to give people, you know, kind of overview of, of where you're at with, my, my early experience, well, my experience of Mysore almost entirely has been extremely positive. 
I, mm. I first went, I, like I say, I was in my early 20s. I went three months on the first trip and I had a fantastic time. I just loved it. You know, I, I enjoyed everything about it. I enjoyed you know, making friends with people who could just hang out and have lunch. I mean, you know, it's like hang out at a coconut stand. I mean, what's, what's not to like? You know, I read an awful lot of novels and I went to chanting class. And on some of the other trips, I did various painting classes. You know, like I took up artistic hobbies and hung out with people. Or later, I quite quickly took my children to Mysore. I had kids when I was quite young. I took the kids to Mysore three times over the years. Um, I mean, I was, I, I would say I, I went from, at first it was like, oh, okay, I'm sort of joining in and going through fairly quickly and all that. And I mean, I did, I did get pushed through quite quickly because you see, Sharat knew I was being taught by Hamish. So Sharat treats different people in rather different ways. It's very hard to understand, uh, or it's impossible, I would say, to understand why some people he wants to move through very slowly and other people very quick, but he did move through me quite quickly. Um, but to be honest, I was quite young and capable, so that sort of makes sense. But I, I, I would say um, that was really positive. And then when I took the children again, that was that was lovely, really, because you know when the kids were little, it wasn't I wasn't practicing, but I was practicing a lot less because when you're juggling working and just having young kids and so on. You know, practice takes uh, a bit of a backseat of your priorities, a bit like it is now. I've got a little one again. Um, mm. Anyway, but being in Mysore, you know, I'd go very early to practice, look after the kids. And my ex-wife at the time, you know, Donna, she would go and practice, you know, and it felt like that, that was making up the structure of your day. It has to be said, you know, it's a very taxing and... Uh, it's not a good choice of word. It's a very demanding, it requires a lot of discipline, as you know, to do this practice. So by being in Mysore, you're there to practice. It becomes mm. the center of your day. Everything is kind of built around that morning ritual. And as a result, you know, you don't get too distracted. You know, and again, in the early days when I was in Mysore, I don't think I even used the internet once. I didn't have a phone. You know, it was a very sort of simple life and it was quite a different time. In fact, when I was first in Mysore, it was, it was just when they'd opened the new Charlotte. And I don't know if you remember these days, but um, Mysore was on hydroelectricity. I don't know if it still is. And the lights would go out. Nearly all the lights would go out at about 6 p.m. And we'd light a candle. And we wouldn't even read a book. We'd have a cup of herbal tea and chat with whoever it was we were living with, you know. And, you know, it was like, right, that's it, bed bar. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, literally, there's no electricity. I mean... It did change because in the last few times I went to Mysore where you can get on the internet. You yeah, I think it's... Whole sets, you know, it's a bit different. Um, Latterly, it was like, what I tell the last time I went, it was like, where is everyone? You know, and then it was, you know, once everyone's got on the internet, you know, and they can watch all these box sets and stuff, it's like no one was at the coconut stand anymore. No one was hanging out with each other anymore. Yeah. Everyone was at home, kind of, you know, yeah. just, just, me, just trying to recover off the practice. But for me, the other thing that's happened is I've had different Mysore trips. I think I've yeah. Seven, which isn't that many, but anyway, I've done about seven. And there were times when I was on my own, uh, you know, totally on my own, not with the kids, and I was just in maybe for a month. And I really did um, act like a sort of hermit or, you know, a monk. And I would just seal myself into doing yoga, walking at the lake, doing a lot of meditation, um, you know, really living a very austere kind of way. But at other times I've been in Mysore and it's just been a hangout with friends, you know. So it's been very different, the trips. You know, there were times when the kids were young and it felt lovely to be part of a community of other young parents hanging out at the pool with other kids. You know, there, there were some very idyllic times. And then there have also been times which, um, I mean, you know what it's like. It's just different periods of your life reflect. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've also been it's... through various emotional upheavals. I mean, I was there just as my life was falling apart. So I was getting divorced and that came as a bit of a shock. So, you know, there, there are times when I've been there and, um, you know, things have been on uh, the out, how, extremely yeah. terrible. Yeah. How, how do you kind of find assimilating or practicing alongside kind of raising a family? Because I, I haven't done that. And, you know, I mean, I can imagine 
that, as you said, practice takes a back seat. Does the practice help or, or do you have to put that aside or, you know, is there any, well, can you say anything about this experience? I, the truth is I can't say a lot about it because I don't right. know, I don't know any different. I mean, mm. I was 25 when I had Caleb and 26 when I had my daughter Daisy and then just recently Rosa was born just a couple of months ago. Um, it's very different now having a baby and I'm 39 compared to when I was 25. But also I'm much more settled now. You know, I'm here in my own home. I'm not going anywhere. Um, the first few years when I had children, I was moving in London from one flat to another flat to another flat, <laughs> you know, like renting different places, being kicked out at the end of a lease and finding... So that was unsettling. But the truth is, because I had that initial training with Hamish and then with Patabi Joyce in Mysore, my practice has nearly always been, well, set your alarm for 4 a.m., just get up and get on with it. So although when the kids were young, my first two, although when they were young and I was somewhat sleep-deprived and tired, uh, I would still basically get up and get on with it. Um, Because you could when you were young. But, but the way that changed was because mm. I was studying with Alaric, this Iyengar teacher, I started to do, which is more of a classic change, is I would do longer inversions. You can see the ropes behind me in the studio. I would do rope shirshasana or chair salangasana. I would do much longer inversions. I would also do a lot more, I never did this before, supine poses. And those poses I did find incredibly helpful when I was tired. I still find them incredibly helpful. If I'm tired now, I don't impose this sense of a six-day routine um, to practice. I mean, I basically practice every day, but there'll be days when I'm just lying on bolsters or just doing supine poses or just inversions and supine. You know, so I'm not too um, I'm not too fixed in my approach. But you see, there were times when I was in Mysore and I went to Sharat in the office and I said, "Oh, I've woken up with a very crooked neck." You know, my daughter was sleeping next to me and I've only had broken sleep and, you know, I was on the sofa or whatever, you know. And I was like, I'll just do primary today, I said to Shirat. You know, and he just said, just do your normal practice, you know, quite firmly to me, which was, I think at the time, it was second and half of third series. I remember walking out of the office thinking, damn, I shouldn't have asked. I should have just done primary. Because if I hadn't asked, he wouldn't have stopped me doing just primary. But I, for some reason, thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just make that suggestion, you know. And then... Uh, but he told me to do that. To be fair, I did it. It was fine. I felt better for having just got... So there are times when I've really kind of admired or appreciated Chirac's kind of holding the bar high and telling me, just get on with it, which he's done pretty much the whole time I've ever been with him. It's like, just get on with it. What would you say to students on that level then? I mean, obviously... I would never say that to students. I would never no, say that. No, no. Right. 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 You go easy today, mate. You take it easy. You know, follow Do you? Yeah. Or if someone says they're tired to you, you know, would you say, oh, just get your feet up against the wall, um, take it easy? Or, because it's a tough one, isn't it? When to kind of encourage someone, you it's know... It's not tough. No, you see, for me, it's not you tough. You don't think so? Okay. But for me, for me, I find generally I, right. I relish the prospect of teaching people some supine poses, something that's going to be taking it easy. If my regular students are doing primary series or whatever it is in their Stanger series, I relish the opportunity to teach them something more supportive. So I don't find it too hard. I, I feel it's really helpful to be able to have that in your palette or in your repertoire that you can do these gentler practices or, or more supportive. I wouldn't even use the word gentler. I think that's a bit misleading. I mean, I remember hearing Alaric saying, and I don't want to misquote him on this, but he said something along the lines of he spent at least a year at one point, or maybe longer, doing just restorative practice. And then he jokingly said, bear in mind that my restorative practice looks more dynamic than a lot of you on a dynamic day, you know? <laughs> and, and I think that's one of the things you have to remember. If you saw me doing restorative practice, it might be four hours of a long Iyengar yoga sequence. It's, it's not easy, you know? It's, it's, it's quite... Um, it's something that you have to be very well trained to do. It's not like you're just sleeping in the corner. Mm, mm. I think that's worth bearing in mind. What are the benefits of restorative practice, or how would you define that? Um, I suppose you could define it as you take two trees and you put one tree in a sheltered greenhouse and you give it all the water and the nutrients it needs and you see how it grows. 
and you expose the other tree, like outside here is the ragged Pennine Hills and some, you know, and you see how the two trees do. It's like the one that's more supported is going to, to flourish, it's going to bloom, it's going to look very different. Um, mm. You know, I have a courtyard just outside this house here where there's an Acer tree that's been growing for the last five or six years. It's, it's gone from a very small bush to this really beautiful-looking small tree. So, I mean, obviously that's the metaphor, but when I'm supported, I feel I can relax and rest and I feel... Um, I feel well. I mean, it's as basic as that. I feel energized and well when I'm supported. And the other thing, the other reason I champion this kind of method to practice is um, there are times in my life when I've either been fatigued or psychologically agitated, stressed out, and to jump around and do such a dynamic practice as you know, the Patabi Joyce sequences, the Ashtanga method kind of entails. There are times when that just doesn't suit me. It either doesn't suit my temperament or it leaves me feeling um, fried. You know, I mean, an obvious example is if I'm, if I'm actually teaching retreats, which I do quite a bit. If I'm teaching retreats and have quite a busy schedule and I'm looking after a larger group of students, you know, it gets either at the beginning, maybe I've been traveling, or towards the end and I'm feeling somewhat depleted. Then when I'm doing, and it's not dissimilar to the primary series sequence actually, but if I'm doing restorative forward bent and I've supported the forehead, and for me, because I've done so much back arching over the years, I have to support this part of my middle back, so there's bolsters in the front and so on, blankets at the front supporting me. There's, um, it has a completely different effect. Um, and, and, and I feel that's extremely healing. You know, it's been extremely healing, supportive, yeah, I can't. But is that not an, is that not an argument for doing it all the time? Then, I mean, just supportive practice. Oh no, it's really not. And this is right. no, because if I did that all the time, it would leave me feeling sluggish, dull, right. heavy. It's like now. It's like you know, I might want to go out for a walk, and that might on some days turn into a you know long hike. But many days, I just want to stroll down the canal. There'll be days yeah. when I don't go outside at all. And pretty quickly, I'll feel like, man, I need to get out and have some fresh air. I don't think it's very different. Me taking a walk down the canal for 40 minutes with my daughter or for me going for a hike through the woods, you know, all afternoon, you know, those are quite different things. And I think you know spontaneously when you want to have more fresh air, be outside for longer. It's similar with practice. I, I like doing the dynamic structure, the practice that I learned in my school. After mm. sequences, I like to work on those. But um, I also like, during the week, you know, or depending on the schedule, I, I like to be able to add in a more restorative practice. And do you, do you teach like that to students now? Say that again? Do you teach like that to students? Do you, are you um, are yeah, kind of balancing, I'm, I'm, balancing the practices? If I'm, if I'm structuring weekends, like a weekend workshop, I try to mm. always include either the last practice or sometimes the beginning practice, you know, it's the same, isn't it? If people have travelled on a Friday night, you know, then actually to do a, a slower start, or if people are about to travel again off on Sunday afternoon, I tend to always, yeah. I mean, the way the Iyengas do, um, or the way the Iyengas school and teachers often do a sort of more dynamic morning practice and a more supported afternoon practice, I tend to follow that now in, in a teaching schedule. You know, so um, that's, yeah, or in my practice a lot, that's what I would do as well. You know, I would do mm. in the morning, and then if I have time later in the day, I'll do a more supportive practice or a more longer inversion practice. When you say supportive, that kind of brings me to the mind of this idea of perhaps facilitating a more appropriate holding or, or sense of you know um, alignment of the structure of the skeleton. Um, sure. What is the Benefit, would you say? I mean, obviously, you've sought that attitude towards your postures within the uh, teaching of the Iyengar system as well. Um, I can't what, teach the Iyengar system. I know it's a tiny point, but I, I do not teach. I, I can't say I teach. No, it. no, you're not teaching it. But you're, you know, I mean, like, to the degree you're interested in that alignment. I oh think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I suppose my uh, my kind of um, you know roundabout way was asking what what is the benefit of aligning the postures. In the first place, I mean, you've learnt in Ashtanga London, first of all, in the classic, under the classic method, which is more just simply breathing, vinyasa, 
and doing, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, extracting another perspective, which is a more particular aligned effect. What are the benefits of each one in your mind? And where do you fall? I mean, I hugely value alignment. You know, these days I value alignment. It's it's like when I first learned yoga, I was just learning from a book and doing it in a very haphazard way. Mm. Then I learned it sort of all over again. And at Hamish's, you know, he he basically taught me. It felt like I learned it all over again. At Hamish's, he taught me. Well, he let me do primary series, but then he taught me second series pose by pose in that very traditional format. Then I went to Mysore itself, where again I did primary for the first month, and then I learned pose by pose through second and then through third series, pose by pose. So it felt like although Hamish had taught me, I had to learn it again under Sharat's eye. Now, actually, when I was being watched by Hamish, I felt supported. I felt held and supported by Hamish. I always felt he had his eye on me and was looking after me. So I felt held. When I learned with Sharat, I wouldn't say I felt quite as nurtured and held as by Hamish. I didn't have such a close relationship or a close sense of trust, partly just because of the scale of the size of the students and so on. But I still felt held by that container. Now, what Mr. Iyengar did, as far as my understanding is, is he looked around at his growing number of students and he couldn't physically support them all so he was using bricks and chairs and what have you to actually be able to support everybody at the same time so now for me if I'm using whatever it is the the prop I can support myself with the prop and the first thing that does is it enables me to stay in a pose for longer now when I stay in a pose for longer that just allows me to process more information of what is moving where or which part of my body is not participating or where I can say the awareness isn't penetrating. So normally I have awareness in the beginning in some major gross part of the body. And that is often a part of the body which might even be straining or overworking. So the proper, the support will allow me to pacify that area and hopefully, not a good day, you know, or, you know, over a period of time, it will allow me to then work the area which isn't, isn't, isn't getting involved, you know. So, and that that changes everything, really. Um, you know. So, I so I first felt like I learned, like I said, with Hamish. <laughs> then, when I learned with Alaric again, I went right back to the basics of, you know, he was saying to me, you know, that's really not, you know, you're not getting the right directionality in dog pose, or you, you know, you're collapsing the lumbar. That's not the right directionality of the tailbone in trikonasana. That's not, and at first, and the other thing you see, I loved in the Iyengar method, and this is very different, is, you know, they, they, they demonstrate and they show a student doing the pose and they ask you, can you see X, Y, or Z? And in the beginning, even though I was already teaching in a Mysore, I did not know what they were referring to. I could not see the directionality of the skin in a particular place. Or, you know, I, I genuinely didn't know what he was talking about. And quite quickly over time, I could start to first see in the demonstration what was changing. And then, you know, it basically prodded me enough that over time. Mm. But also, uh, well, no, that's it really. So, I mean, what that did though is it it makes me incredibly attuned and aware of what I'm doing. Whereas, you know, I mean, you know this because you're experienced. It's like you might look at me gliding on through primary series and somebody might notice the floating through and the floating back and think you know all that looks like a lovely advert for yoga but actually i'm fretting about i don't know whatever i'm stressed about you know what i mean i can be really distracted and you might not know when you look Mm. at me you probably would know if i'm but you might not i mean actually i could i've done it so many times i could make it look like i'm you know quite calm and focused and actually i'm not um what i liked with alaric is He's also a psychotherapist. So he would use this different type of language, or well, not even different, but he would use, he would use a more nuanced language than, than I had heard in a Mysore room. And he would be saying, Joey, you're agitated, come down. And I thought, how does he know I'm agitated? But he was just looking at the furrow of my eyebrows or the biting of my lip or something quite clear. Maybe he could see some strain, you know, in some muscle quivering. So he would just say, you're agitated, come down. And, and there was no two ways about it. It was like, he's right, I'm agitated. So I, I enjoyed the directness. It wasn't 
it wasn't you've got the bind now do the next one keep the challenge going it was much more like come back you haven't got power to trick an asana you know understanding it there's some kind of benefit of aligning to some further degree of internal aligning yeah but it's also for me it's just about it's participating isn't it i mean there's a phrase which i've heard quite a bit lately which is you know your mind might be distracted well then you just give it something to do it's like when my young well but they're older now they're teenagers but when my kids were at the steiner school i used to sometimes see the teacher who i thought was great work with quite difficult kids and those kids who are quite difficult who might be quite disruptive they always seem to give that kid something special like they give that kid a special job you know i really need you to sit with me and do this thing and you watch that kid feel involved and enjoy being in the class and it didn't matter that they were doing something maybe different to the other kids well when i'm practicing yoga sometimes my mind can behave a bit like that you know slightly naughty school child to use that analogy so i just have to give my mind something to do it has to participate so i make my mind participate by checking the heels the inner the outer checking you know the outer hips are they pinning in checking is the coccyx moving to the heel or is it has it disappeared is it you know is it not participating in the pose so for me it very much is about getting my mind to participate moving through these body parts and then you know that that really for me that really changes things and what i notice is when i try and drive that type of teaching through to students um on the whole it works quite well i mean there are also times when you just want to let that go and get on with it you know so the opposite of that is frankly just speeding up you know if you're doing quite a fast canted primary series that's a very different thing you don't have to keep doing it endlessly but as a stage of practice i think it can um work very well for a number of years i mean it's still working for me very well hmm and you don't find it takes the the emphasis off the kind of mind control in a kind of patanjali in a way and put it back into the body no i think it's just a right. I don't think it's just a different mm. interpretation. Yeah, I, mm. I, exactly the right. same. I really see no um, no difference. I mean, there was a time when I was a student of Hamish and John's, and then you know, um, and then you know, obviously Patabi Joyce and Shirat, and I was doing my best to count the number of vinyasa, count the number of vinyasa. I used that as a method to you know, okay, I'm distracted. I'll go to counting. But then it got to a point where counting felt a little bit. Um, uh, I don't know. It's like, I mean, I used to sit with Buddhist groups who would say, okay, meditate, count the breaths. That's a fantastic way to start meditating, focusing on the breath. Your mind has wandered, you come back to the counting. But then you stop doing that quite quickly and you just focus on the flow and the sensation of the breathing. You dr- the counting is quite an early stage. My view these days with Ashtanga personally is that yeah, it's great to count five breaths in the pose. It's great to maybe, you know, count the vinyasa when you're learning it so that you've got this sense of an understanding of the system. But you don't keep doing that. I mean, I play guitar, so I might, um, I might count one, two, three, four, and begin. And then I might count through in the 12-bar blues, you know, one, and two, and three, and four, and one, two, three, and four, and change, and two, and three, and four. But once you've been around that kind of circular song a few times... You just know, you feel, and change. And you change in the right place, or I generally do. You know, it's like, of course, if you're distracted. So actually, this analogy of music and then just feeling it, it's kind of, that's how it works for me now when I'm practicing a rhythm of a sequence. I just feel Mm, and change. I feel it. Now, I like going back and doing a, you know, a counted class when, you know, Shirat's leading or, you know, actually these days I've joined in with a number of different teachers just through YouTube or whatever and go, oh, that's good. And then I always, I always pick something up. I'm like, oh, I've been sloppy here. Oh, I've been speeding up there. Mm. So I, I find that quite useful. I just wouldn't want to practice like that all the time. So along those lines, what are the benefits of tradition then vis-a-vis kind of learning it, learning the counting, learning the, you know, and then spreading out to, you know, freestyle essentially doing what's right for you, you know, uh, uh, developing a practice for yourself, you know, should, well, I, should we take, I, I kind of think that's think? probably where most of us is going. I mean, I, I, my, my guess is if you watch me practice throughout the week, you know, which 
you don't have to do. But like, if you were to watch that, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it Ashtanga. You know, it, it depends how you use the term. For me, I use the term Ashtanga a bit more loosely. I try to use the terminology, oh, the Pratava Joy sequences. But, you know, I, I don't personally see Iyengar Yoga as anything other than a different form of Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga. Uh, it's the same, you know, with these Ashtanga sequences. It's the same with lots of other, for me personally. Um, so, so in terms of what, all I can say what I got is I got a great sense of structure and also discipline um, from the kind of fairly traditional approach. I still think of myself, if I'm honest, I mean, I know other people would disagree, but I, I still think of myself as quite traditional, to be honest. I, I, I genuinely do. I realize other people think I'm quite non-traditional because uh, <laughs> I like to support people with props and so on. But I still see it as a very traditional format. I mean, my view is always just I want to support and encourage and help the people who are there and who I'm working with, and I'll just use what method that I see fit at the time. Um, obviously, there are drawbacks to this, um, the main one being if I'm mixing around too many methods and showing people too many different things too soon, then maybe they just leave feeling confused. If I've given them too many options, which I've, I've certainly done sometimes, mm -hmm. made mistakes along the way, then people go, oh, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I mean, in my own practice, I wouldn't say I normally feel like I don't know what to do, but there are definitely days where there's a doubt or a hesitation. You know, should I practice this series or that series? Or because I've got, I don't know, some strain or soreness from yesterday's enthusiastic practice, should I just go back to, you know, a, a gentle restorative sequence? So that, that can be tricky to gauge, I think. That's, yeah. I think that's the, you know, I think that can be tricky for people. But you could say the same thing about somebody who's learned intermediate series. When then should they do intermediate? When should they do primary? You know, are they only supposed I mean, to do primary on Friday? Do you really think that? I mean, there's definite injunctions around it, isn't there? And is there any benefit from these ideas that are floating around about, you know, surrendering to the tradition or, you know, respecting the tradition rather than just deciding, well, I feel better holding the toe on the side of the foot, so well, I think I'll do that. People have to trust in their process. I genuinely believe it's, it's true that what we're engaging in, if we're engaging in yoga as sort of spiritual practice uh, and we, we have, you know... Uh, an intention of aiming for the highest, you could say, you know, if we're not just doing it for kind of fairly materialistic pursuits, then, um, then, then you do have to have trust in the process. You do have to have trust that you're on a path. I mean, my path and process doesn't look the same as yours and doesn't look the same as plenty of other people's. I mean, if some people's process is they're going to, you know, adhere to the exact way that on this day they do this sequence and on that day they do that sequence and then you know then that's fine mm. some people that's their process and i think that's wonderful for me i view that process as um almost just just well it, it seems too ascetic to me um it doesn't it doesn't allow me a sense of autonomy i suppose you know i, I want at the end of the day to trust my own instincts, my own sense. And I do, I have that sense of trust. Um, and I suppose, well, not, I said, yeah, I, I do. I, I, trust in, I trust in my teachers who come from several different traditions. And I also trust that I'll know what to do when I'm practicing. And I feel I do know that, you know, it's, I, I, I don't think it's that complex. It's like, um, it's like I think children know when to stop eating. They just know when they're full. I think it gets a bit harder when you're an adult sometimes to know if you're full or if you're not. Or, you know, but really, I, yeah. think, I think hopefully it should be as natural as that. Um, you know, I've, I've had enough. I'll stop. Now, I, I've seen very you know, traditional teachers tell people to stop much sooner, and they would only then start again with you know, the structure of the Pitabha Joy sequences. And that's fine. I mean, so, so you're not a teacher that stop people. If you, you can't bind in Richardsonadi, you can't go any further. I mean, how do you how do you feel about I've the? Done, I've done that. that kind of, I'm, 
for me, yeah. I can't really say as a generalised thing what I would do. Right. Just depend on the student. For some students, I might see that they're really enthusiastic and capable, and I might try and hold them back. And the purpose of that is obviously um, <laughs> discipline, <laughs> boundaries. You know, it's just about teaching somebody boundaries, isn't it? Um, which is great. I mean, I loved being held back by Hamish in the beginning because it was like, oh, okay, he's telling me what to do. Um, that's great. You know, I, I liked that. Again, Alaric was holding me back. You know, no, I don't want you to take the toe. I want you to come back high. You know, he, in, in actual pose, he'd, he'd pull me right back to contain it. He said to me, you know, I'm going to try and make you stiff, which shocked me. I was in my mid Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's like, oh, you're going to try and make me move less and contain my movement. Um, and now that's what I do to a lot of students. I try and contain them because, you know, most of us who are doing yoga these days, a lot of well, most, a lot of us who do yoga, we do it because we're told we're good at it. So we tend to be quite mobile to begin with anyway. We just don't realize. So a lot of my job is to hold people back. I'm constantly trying to hold people back. Not always in the sequence in the traditional way, but often in the expression of the pose. Like, come on, like put your attention in your back heel. Put your attention in your, your buttock bones. You know, connect the buttocks to the heels so that you're not, you know, straining the hamstring attachments and so on. So, so um, yeah, for me... So the purpose of holding people back is? Well, it's safety and it's boundaries. And sometimes it's to establish some sort of rapport and trust. Right. What's the boundaries? What do you mean, what's the boundaries? Can you uh, kind of elaborate on, the, on that term? Well, I have to, I mean, in psychology, we all understand we have boundaries. There's, 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 there's a certain place I'm willing to go and there's a certain place I'm not willing to go. Um, uh, and, I mean, it's like me telling a, a young kid, okay, the boundary is here on the field. You're not allowed to go past it. You know, so I would say to, I don't know, I might have said to my children, you know, you're only allowed to go that far. Or when you get to the end of the street, you have to stop. You have to wait for me before you can cross the road. That kind of thing. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say people or children, especially in this context, might not cross the boundary a little bit. But I think actually by knowing where the boundary is, it gives them a feeling of safety. And I don't think it's that different for adults, personally. If I know where the boundary is, I, 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 know, where, I know where my limit is. Um, now, you know, I could, you could talk about it in a whole number of different ways. You can talk about that in Ashtanga, what you allude to many times is the boundary is the edge of a sequence. I tend to think of it as the boundary is the expression of the posture. Um, but there is also the sequence. There is also then the sequence spread out over weeks, months, or a season, or whatever it is. So, so there are boundaries in so many things. I mean, the boundary that was very helpful to learn through the traditional format of being in my school, was the boundary of going to bed very early and then the boundary of, you know, not taking in too much sensory stimulation, you know, or, or the boundary, you know, you go to, I've done plenty of Vipassana retreats where it's the boundary of, you know, you only eat morning and then your midday meal and then there's the, you abstain from evening meal. So there's, there's so many boundaries that you, can, that you can create. And actually what they, of course, create is the boundary creates freedom. So the analogy is like, you know, you take away somebody's freedom and they're just stuck in the room playing trombone their entire childhood, you know, and then they turn into a fabulous trombonist and you think, my God, the freedom of that playing of jazz or whatever it is. But that, that freedom is, is because the boundary was so tight. So in any discipline, and it only really works, I think, if you, if you want to impose this discipline on yourself, but by fixing... By, by narrowing the boundaries, it, it then enables you to really explore whatever it happens to be. So, I mean, for me, I often now teach on a day and say, okay, we'll just do standing poses. And by narrowing the sequence down and then narrowing down the actions in a particular set of poses, <clears throat> I personally feel the student comes away with more understanding of that small group of poses and from a learning environment or a pedagogical environment, I feel that's very helpful because that's how I've learned now. That's one of the ways I've learned, which I feel is, is useful to then impart to others. Mm. But you see, if I were to try to 
and, and and this is really challenging. I mean, I'm sure you or other teachers will will sympathise with this. There is a sense that we sometimes want to give people everything. We want to give them a whole practice. But we want to give them some teaching points. And I want to break down and stop and demonstrate a couple of bits. But there's just not the time. I mean, you might be able to teach a three-hour workshop, but in an hour and a half, it's like, what can you cover? You, you just have to strip it back. Um, yeah, a lot. Of, yeah, I mean, elaborating further on that, what would you say apart from the kind of the creation of a kind of holding structure or a sense of structure in which people can, you know, find the boundaries of them, their own selves, I suppose, within the sequence. What is the, what would you say the role of yourself as a teacher is, or what, what would be a good teacher? I know it's a very vague and ambiguous term in your mind. I don't think it's that. No, I think the main thing is, is the, the, the great strength that the, what we could call the traditional Ashtanga method has offered me as a structure. Now that I've been studying yoga for a bit longer, so about 20 years, I'm a bit like Socrates who realises, you know, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Because when you start studying with teachers who've done it for 40 or 50 years, you realise how, how vast the subject is. Now, what my senior teachers have done for me is they've said, go back to the beginning and look at this again. You know, and they've said that repeatedly, every single time, and across the traditions, they've said, you don't know what you're doing, go back, start again, go back, start again. It, it doesn't matter if it's Sharat or Adarit, you know, start again. And every time I look a bit cocky, <laughs> which happens sometimes, you know, they're like, oi, check yourself, start again. Now, in the process of starting again, Either I choose or a teacher shines a light on an area of, of dullness, darkness, ignorance, just a place where there's a lack of insight. And then, and then in the framework and the structure of a postural practice, you have a choice. You can focus on the flowing movements of Surya consistent flowing pace. And just this morning, I was asking people to watch where the movement got choppy and sped up and jerky and where they can slow the movement. Now, you could narrow that right down in a seated position and just look at the flow of the movement of the air. Is it coming in in a jerky fashion or is it, or is it smoother? So then it's pranayama practice, it's breathwork practice. But I could focus on the solidity and structure of standings. And for me, I do feel that beginners need to spend longer on standings. And I also feel that people who followed a more traditional Ashtanga um, methodology benefit a lot from... Um, you know the, the standings just look working at standings that's the easiest place to work out the relationship between the major parts of the body so i'm a big fan of that um but then but then you can go through all the categories of poses you've got you know it is you can focus on just forward bends focus on just back bends you can focus on just twists and when i've studied with teachers like christian pisano you know i've sometimes spent a weekend on just one um one aspect so i've done you know Maybe it's just a weekend on forward bends. And then there's so many different ways to do it. Now, it's not all, um, it's not all supported. A lot of it is supported to create this feeling of ease. But then a lot of it later would be like leg behind head variations like you and me know from the third series. So it's like, you know, you, you, can, take, you can take a category and you can go with it anywhere, but it'll have different colorations. So... Um, so I, I feel there's, there's tremendous benefit for teachers to show you how these things can be done in different ways. So th there's... And everyone has the accessibility to that, even if they're a, a stiff person without any physical range in the body particularly, uh, they still have the capacity to develop and, and expand their practice in this manner because obviously you have that ability to, to feel those parts of the body moving because they do articulate. Obviously, people who are less well-trained or less inclined won't necessarily be able to have as many variations. But ultimately, yeah, everyone can do every category. Well, not everyone. Most of the categories of poses, some form of back up, some form of forward bend, some form of standing, some form of inversion. Yeah, I think there's definitely ways for people to do it. I mean... You know, I'm constantly showing people Kurmasana where they sit on the edge of a chair and just go forward, you know, and it, it takes the hamstrings out of the equation. So then I'll often use the phrase, you know, you're doing this for the back and you broaden the spinal muscles, you broaden the back. 
Now, a lot of people look at me a bit like, that's not the pose, you know, but actually, I'm like, why, why? I'm like, I got tremendous insight from this variation of how to relax. Why can't I pull my hamstrings up and lift my heels off the floor? They might be saying. Yeah, so. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah. not doing the shape as much as I could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, there are different ways, but for me, for me, that's definitely the way I like to approach it as a student now and as, and as a teacher. It doesn't suit everybody, quite a lot of people. I can, I, well, yeah, lots of people, it doesn't suit them. There's a, there's a temperament for it. I have to say, I was more inclined to to be doing some of this other approach, you know, with, with more experience. So uh, the thing that springs to mind is something I remember Christian Pisano teaching, which is saying in the beginning, you know, practice is often stimulating. There's a sense of, there's an obvious sense in the Ashtanga format of progression through a series. There's an often a sense of satisfaction that you've completed a series. I mean, for me, it did feel like a milestone, for instance, to complete third series in Mysore. But it also felt like a milestone to complete second series. It was like, great, you know, I was really happy to, to have done it. Um, right. I mean, actually, then the question is, can I maintain it? That's a whole other issue. But, but that, that did feel great. But then you see, it's, it, but then there's, a, then there's a completely different approach later on, which is, um, you know, if you've been doing this for more decades, and, and I'm not really saying this is somebody, I'm not trying to allude that I've been doing it for that long. But it's like when I'm in my third decade of practice, fourth decade, fifth decade of practice, and I certainly hope to be practicing postural yoga for many more decades. One of the things that Christian Pisano alludes to is it should become less and less stimulating and the journey is more and more inward. And when you alluded to what was the benefit of alignment or what was the benefit of the supportive poses, I go much more inward when I do these slower sequences. So I do certain Iyenga sequences. There's a sequence called the emotional stability sequence at the back of Light on Yoga, and I studied that and practiced that a little bit with Alaric Newcomb. So when I practice that and I've got time, you know, I'm, I'm, I think it's only about 12, maybe 10 or 12 poses or something. And yet I'll be doing it sometimes for three or four hours, holding poses right. 20 minutes at a time. It's a completely different experience. So when you say going inwards, you're not any longer concentrating, keeping your mind corralled by the alignment focus that you mentioned before. You have what to does that, that little what does bit. That mean? You do let go. You, you, so what, what's the, what's the, the um, form of the body is held. You know, you roped the legs mm. together. You supported the back on the bench or you supported the pelvis on the bench. You supported the shoulders with bolsters, blankets, and so on. You even cover the eye. A lot of the time we wear a blindfold for that sequence. So, yeah, I mean, the awareness is very different. And you unravel parts of the body and tensions and different parts of what feels like the organs. And, you know, you, you go swimming in the body. And I can only describe it as it's quite a sort of psychedelic experience. It's, um, it's very different. Another way to describe it would be it's like a, you quite, or I quite commonly would say I experience kind of transpersonal experience. I, I really do feel like I go somewhere else when I'm doing that type of practice. And, um, and I love it. And there are times when I said the same thing you asked, which is why don't I do that all the time? But I remember saying to Alaric quite early on, oh, I feel so peaceful. I mean, I really felt so sublimely peaceful after doing some class or sequence with him. I said, God, I might just give up Ashtanga and do that all the time and he said to me and he said it keenly he said or he said it with a certain force he said the only reason you just benefited and are describing that delicious sort of juice or joy that you've just described is because this morning you did a dynamic strong practice he said you wouldn't be able to do that had you not been disciplined enough to have done what you did earlier you know either in earlier years mm. you know so so I, I, I really richly now value, I really value having both this dynamic side and this other side of practice. Right. And do you get involved in the yoga philosophy at all? Does, it have a, does the, the yoga asana have a deeper underpinning for you? Yeah, it has a huge, yeah. I mean, the two go hand in hand. Um, right. I wouldn't say I'm very skillful at teaching the uh, philosophy so much. I tend to, I do my best, um, but I find it more challenging. I tend to rely more heavily on readings. So I find excerpts from books and read 
that's one of the ways I, I share it. I also do um, contemplation. So I'll ask students questions and ask them to do journaling and then get people in small groups and discuss things. Um, but yeah, for me, the, the two go hand in hand. I mean, you, you have to have a meaning and a purpose to make sense of what we're doing. And for me, I suppose this sense of touching the transpersonal experience, or we could just go back to the question, you know, who am I? That's a central thrust to working out. Well, working out's the wrong expression. But as, to, as to the motivation for why we keep practicing. Well, does, that, does the practice, the asthma practice, facilitate that question or that questing? Yeah, that for me, yeah. yeah, for me, it absolutely does. I mean, I am, I am a body. I have a body. I don't deny that, you know. And I, I, I feel that we can kind of embody a certain uh, wisdom tradition, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I, I feel very strongly about that. I mean, I've, I've always, from early on in my practice, I've, I've had a sitting practice. So I regularly sit, I regularly go on silent retreat in various different, you know, Buddhist traditions. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I really value, I really value the, the Indian philosophy, philosophy. I mean, it's like, I mean, just lately I've been reading Sophie's World again. And it's just, it's, it's, it's just so joyful, isn't it, to kind of ask yourself these questions. I mean, I, I love it. I really love it. I don't claim to be skillful in, in teaching that side of it. It's not my strong point. But, um, but yeah. They weren't that keen on that book when I did my philosophy degree. Look down upon it. <laughs> Potential philosophers. <laughs> no, it's a good book. It's a good introductory book. <laughs> Look, just to lighten up, and I, you know, I'm keen that you're, you're probably busy, um, can you just tell us... Uh, well, I usually round it up by just saying, um, what are your inspirations outside yoga? And uh, what is your, oh, I, I, I say this every time and then people can, uh, don't like the question, but what is your kind of guilty pleasure or your indulgence to yourself? Uh, so an inspiration and yeah, just to give a rounded sense of, <laughs> of anything you might be outside the yoga practice, sucking everything out of you. <laughs> um, that's a good question. That's oh, quite a nice question. Um, uh, I I enjoy learning. I mean, I know that's right. rudimentary, but again, Alaric, who the teacher I've alluded to several times, he mentioned something in positive psychology called the strengths test. It's quite well known. And in the strengths test, you can do this fairly sort of straightforward online quiz. And the idea of positive psychology is to it's partly to identify your strengths, what you're good at, what you enjoy. And play to your strengths. Um, anyway, the thing that struck me when I did this, it was a few years back, it was one of, well, not one of the, you come out with a list of, I think it's about 50 different uh, aspects. But the number one for me is love of learning. <clears throat> so I, I like learning. I love it. I think it's why I teach, because I like learning stuff and imbibing it and then trying to share it with people. Um, so the love of learning is strong for me. And at the moment, I'm still learning. I've been back at college studying counselling. I'm continuing with another couple of years of counselling training at the moment. Um, and that's been really, really wonderful and insightful. So I, I really enjoy that aspect. Uh, that's what I'm currently sort of studying. Um, I also, I, suppose, I wouldn't say it's a guilty pleasure, but I, I love music. I absolutely adore music. So I, I play music, dance, I play guitar. Um, what kind of stuff? Oh, all sorts of stuff, you know, Beatles songs, Bob Dylan songs, you know, that's what I do when I'm noodling around on the guitar. Now that my daughter's two months old, I've got a captive audience. I've been learning to play all the songs from Oh Brother, Where Are Thou, you know, bluegrass type stuff. So I've been uh, singing, you know, I go down to the river to pray with my daughter and I've been singing all those, you know, it's, it's, it's Christian biblical stuff, all that stuff. But I, it's been fun playing guitar and um, doing that sort of stuff. I... Uh, I've been playing a lot lately, so that's nice. And also, I just devour books. I read and devour books when I'm not you know, looking after the kids. Well, actually, I'm always looking after the kids, and then I'm always sort of slightly ignoring them as I read books. You know? yeah. The teenager's telling you to shut up on the guitar now. Getting to that age. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. The teenager's always like, oh, my God, you're playing such miserable songs. Yeah, yeah. A sad love song. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. So I would say uh, I would try and think of someone that they would say oh you'll play that for us dad but I don't know any modern stuff 
<laughs> I'll, I'll, stick, I'll stick with the Dylan. <laughs> you never need to move past that. All right. Well, it's been a wonderful um, and a pleasurable experience um, having this chat with you, Joey. Um, and thanks for thanks for your time, eh?